0: Let me invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy, chapter 3. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because we spent the first part of the summer. Uh, Camper did a wonderful series leading us through, verse by verse, what uh, God was saying through the Apostle Paul in the entire letter. My intention is in no way to uh, correct or even to repeat, uh, but just to zero in on a specific passage in chapter 3. Somewhat familiar, but always for uh, worth our um, consideration. We'll be reading this morning verses 16 and 17 from Second Timothy chapter three. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. You can continue looking. God will hear you even as the pages are rattling, if you need to find it, uh, but I'll pray for us that we would be able to hear what God would speak to us. Our Father, we do come uh, this morning and at your invitation with thanksgiving that we. Uh, though we are far from perfect, have been counted perfect through faith in Jesus Christ, can come into your presence not only to sing praises to you, but to have fellowship with you. And as in any fellowship, Lord, there is a conversation, and we now commit ourselves not to speaking to you, but to listening to you, even through the words that I offer. Though they are inadequate, your word itself is powerful. So may you speak through your word and through me to each of us here that we would be reminded that you, the living and true God, who spoke all things into creation, continues to talk to your people today. Bless us. Speak to us by your spirit that we might be able to see Jesus more clearly through faith. And it's in Jesus' name that we offer our prayer. Amen. Second Timothy 3.16 and 3.17. Hear the word of the Lord. All Scripture is breathed out by God, And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. May the Lord bless us and grant us understanding from his word this morning. All across the South this past week, people were outside sweating foolishly as high school football practice began. And in many of those schools, the coaches were preparing themselves for the past month to be able to muster up and to give their best Vince Lombardi imitation. I've shared the story with you before, but it's still worthy to be shared because Vince Lombardi, who was the Hall of Fame football coach of the Green Bay Packers and then later for the Washington Redskins, was known not only for his championships, but the, in one way, and his intensity, but the simplicity with which he approached the game. And it is reported that at the beginning of every training camp, every year, he would gather his team around, and as he was addressing them for the first time, he would lift up a ball and say, Gentlemen, this is a football. And all across the country, you have high school coaches starting with that same kind of speech, trying to get their attention. Now, it makes sense for a high school coach to do it. A high school coach always has freshmen coming in that maybe have never played before, or sophomores that are rising to the varsity level for the first time and are scared. Or you just have, well, I played for a long time and just have to confess, you have a lot of idiots that play the game and, you know, you just got to remind them of basic things. But Lombardi was speaking not only to professionals who, you know, have been playing their entire life, but the champions. And so you would wonder why would a guy who was that successful, Just start with something so simple. Lombardi's philosophy articulated, even in that speech, was just as a reminder that whether you are a rookie or whether you are a veteran, you never move beyond the basics, that the fundamentals must always be understood, must always be exercised, and everything must be built upon the basic fundamentals. Now, as we read these particular verses within the context of this last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, this is the last thing that he was writing, and he's writing to his protege, Timothy, He's writing, he's pouring out his heart, as becomes evident if you were to read towards the end, uh, because it it does actually get emotional, and just saying, I I feel very lonely, and, and please come quickly. This is a very heartfelt letter that he's writing, and in this, he's pouring out the most basic and passionate issues of his heart. In the text that we have before us, the Apostle Paul is essentially to his protege, Timothy, who certainly knew the Word, had been pastoring and teaching the Word, He's doing the same Lombardi technique, not only for him, but for the sake of all who would read. He's lifting up a book and saying, this is the Word of God. And this book is profitable for anyone who seeks to understand it through studying it. The Apostle Paul is reminding us with these simple words in these two verses that we build our lives, we who claim the name of Christ build our lives by the word that God has given to us. And that we never move beyond it. We never simply under, uh, uh, under uh, or, or uh, assume it. We dig into it. We hold it. We treasure it. Paul makes some foundational statements and some instructional statements in this. And we're going to look at this in really in, in two different ways. First we see the instructional statement or the doctrinal statement that he makes. And he makes it in verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now this is Paul's doctrinal assertion about what the, Bible is, what the Bible actually is. And it's really from this particular statement that we understand that the, the Bible that we have, the, the Scriptures that we are given, that we can trust the Word of God. It's, it's trustworthy. The passage itself makes two claims, because when he says all Scripture is breathed by God, you have the mental image of something that is being breathed out. The the Greek word is theonoustros, which just simply means breathed by God. And so it's the inhaling, the exhaling. It's God who is expressing this and speaking out as an instruction. It's not really, the imagery is not much different than when we see in the beginning of Genesis that God spoke all things into existence, God spoke this word, all of this Bible. Is God breathing, speaking, giving that to us? Now, we also need to recognize, and it's important that we acknowledge, and we have no reason to hide from this or to to minimize this, that God does speak through the human writers. Every book in this Bible is written by a, 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 a person, a person with personality, a person with perspective, a person with history, A person who is writing for a purpose, none of whom were writing for getting into the Bible. It wasn't like you're trying to make this submission. You hear that there's going to be this collection that's going to go on for eternity and that it's, you know, going to be the bestseller in all of history and you would like to be in there as well. And so you're writing your best and submitting the best thing that you have, hoping to be publicized, or to be public... There we go. I was going to say publicated. I don't think that's correct. But anyway... um, (laughs) Maybe it is, maybe one day it will be, but anyway. So thank you for the English people. um, (laughs) That they would be published. But what Paul is saying here, that we do see elsewhere in Scripture, but that we need to understand is that while there were human writers, individual writers, the fact that God is breathing all of Scripture is a claim. It's an indication that all of the Scripture was God, who was the ultimate author, and that his message, what he wanted communicated, was communicated through each of the individuals that he had blessed and who he had ordained and chosen to collect the writings with which they had. None of those who were writing were perfect people. None of them were sinless. But God had a hold of them in such a way that when they sat down writing for their occasion, God was at work in them, that everything they communicated was true, and and what they communicated was sufficient, specific to what God would want communicated not only to the original recipients of the letters or the writings, but recorded for all of time. God did this in a way that is mind boggling because the people sitting down, it wasn't like they were in a trance of some sort that just feeling came over them that they needed to write. It's not like they needed to say, you know, honey, uh, you put the kids to bed. I, I feel something coming on. I just got to write this down because this is going to be great. Many of them have written other things that are not kept for us, and they're valuable if we were able to read them, but they were not God speaking in the same way as what we have before us. And God was at work in them to communicate Without violating their consciences, without violating their personality, changing their personality, or even changing their perspective. Every book of the Bible, every letter that is written, is written from the personality and the perspective of the one who is writing, that it reflects and we can tell the differences in the people. And yet, Paul says, But it was God who was at work and speaking through every one of them. It's inspired. The word inspiration simply means breathe. It's God's breathe. And that's an audacious claim. And it's that understanding that we we hold to and that we know and that we would say this is God's word, whatever part of it that we are reading. And we need to understand that whatever part of it that we're reading is also claimed here as well because this passage, this simple phrase says, all scripture is God breathed. Is the, is the is the Greek phrase, and it says everything that's in here. And it may not seem to be that radical of a claim, but in our culture we have questions that seem to be very subtle questions, but they erode the trust of the reliability of the Bible. Some commentators that you might read uh, will translate this particular passage, all scripture that is God breathed. Now there seems to be, Very little difference in that statement, all scripture that is God-breathed. It's certainly not an erroneous statement, all scripture that is God-breathed and is useful, and and certainly that's true, it is consistent with what Paul says here. But that little word, that subtle thing, the thing that we would almost not notice, does open up a whole other possibility that can eradicate, or at least erode, the faith that we have in the reliability of the word that God has given. Because while it is true that all scripture that is God-breathed, anything that is God-breathed, is useful and is powerful and is beneficial, it does open the suggestion that what's here is, has God's word, but we're not necessarily sure what is God's word. That's the question that our culture sometimes asks. You see it in the colleges. You see it with some people preaching. A number of years ago, that was really the foundational question that was behind the whole Da Vinci Code. and. Dan Brown's question about the Scripture. In one sense, he's elevating the fact that God has spoken, and what God has spoken is beneficial for us, is authoritative, and not minimizing that, that God has somehow spoken. But with that simple phrase, rather than, uh, that change in phrase, rather than all Scripture is God-breathed, all Scripture that is God-breathed, it begins to say, okay, now I need to figure out which is it that God has written and which of it is not that God has written. We see that practically uh, lived out in the lives of many evangelicals today. Some of them would refer to themselves as red-letter Christians. It actually seems to be a rather noble claim, because in many Bible translations or many, uh, some of the translations, you will see the words of Jesus that are highlighted in red, the words that he actually had spoken. And then you know what Jesus had spoken as opposed to what somebody else had spoken or somebody else had written. And I've heard people, people that I appreciate, people that I like, people that sometimes that I even admire, will then try to make a contrast between what Jesus has said and usually what Paul has said, because people don't seem to like what Paul has to say, at least the difficult things that he has to say. And so they begin to minimize what Paul has said by saying, well, Paul went on and pontificated about all this stuff, but I only go with what Jesus said, because that's the authority. And it sounds very pious and sounds very right, and of course we want to elevate anything that Jesus has said. But the claim that Paul is making here... That God is working through him is that God said it all, and so that there is no more authority in the words that are read than there is in any other word from Genesis one through the end of Revelation. God spoke, and God spoke through them. Jesus is God, so it's all should be in red. Now, am I against the red letter editions? No, I think it's very pretty, and I and. Um, but we need to be very careful. And it's not, you know, don't trash your red-letter Bibles. Those are the, again, there is some reason sometimes to be helped. It helps me sometimes to be able just to keep track in the discussions. But in the end, because it is God who is speaking, and Jesus who is the Word incarnated. Every, the claim here, and the claim of all of Scripture, is that all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of it belongs to God, and with that carries the authority because it's God's Word. And I stand on that. We stand on that in this church. We've been asked recently because of cultural events to stand and make claims. We don't have a need to because we have never wavered from the fact that this is God's Word. We've never denied the fact that there are places in some ways that we get out of line with God's Word. But because this is God's Word, it restores us and we are in need of conforming to it. And since we haven't changed our position, we don't have any need to speak to the issues. And I will not allow the Supreme Court, the President of the United States, or anybody else to set the agenda that God would have for us in the church. There's cultural pressures that would erode our trust in the Word. We will not cave. We will not compromise. This is God's word. He has breathed it. He has spoken it. He has given it to us. And while we stand firm on that word, we hold it high, hold it with value, simply because it's God who has spoken it. And therefore, it is worthy of respect and of submission to us. We stand with all others who hold the word of God with reverence, and, all. and yet there's more to this passage and there's more even to that idea because there are many people who can hold the word of God in high regard and have a good doctrine of scripture and yet miss what Paul is trying to say to the people that he's writing to, to Timothy and to those that Timothy would share. I just got back again from Cherokee. I, as most of you are aware, I work with Mission of the World as part of staff uh, for the ministry to establish a church on the Cherokee reservation in North Carolina. And so this past week I was there again working with teams that are ministering in different areas of the community. And I've become fascinated not not only with the, the, the culture of the Cherokee but their history as well. And one of the stories that is not one of their mythologies but one of their historical stories that has always both captured my attention and pierced my heart took place when the missionaries uh, first came to that same area only a few miles from where uh, I was uh, where I was staying for this past week But one of the missionaries had come and went to the chief and he wanted to establish the church uh, among the Cherokee and bring the Word of God to them and preach them and so he goes to the chief and said this is what I'd like to do showing great respect to the chief and asking for his permission and said that I want to teach and this is what I'm going to teach Others had come in, and they had already betrayed the Cherokee, and so he, trying to be protective of his people, wasn't just wanting anybody to come in and teach whatever they wanted. He wanted to know what was going to be taught. The Cherokee have always been committed to what they call the way, the right way. And so he said, well, let me read your book first. And the chief, his name was Yanaguska He happened to be a literate man, and he was able to read uh, English. And so he took the Bible from the missionary, and then a week or so later, when the missionary came back to see if he'd read it, Yanaguska said... I will allow you to teach this to my people. This is a good book. But it's just a wonder to me that why the white people aren't any better for having had it for so long. What he was addressing is the same issue because he had certainly experienced people coming in in the name of whoever, and yet their character was significantly lacking. Members of church even claiming to come in the name of God, and yet for selfish gain, acting in ways that were wrong and certainly inconsistent with the instruction of God's word. And so we need to be aware and remind ourselves that just because we hold the Bible with great authority and claim that believe that it is from God, there is more that we need to understand than simply that it's God's word. I went to a church uh, years ago that had claimed, and I, uh, to, when it was founded, a church that was the first church that I served, and it had a horrendous, horrendous history. I'm the only pastor that they didn't fire. The guy who replaced me is still there. But since he's still there, he could still get fired. But no, that's... Um, um. And when they got founded, they had told the, the group that wanted to found it that they believed the Bible. And it was kind of one of these conversations. You know, we believe the Bible. We believe every word of the Bible, even genuine leather. I mean, that's a... That's funny, anyway that's a good indication that maybe they haven't read it and studied it and sought to understand it. They hold it high, but sometimes you hold it so high, just like something that is priceless in your possession, you don't want to handle it. While this is God's word and worthy of being highly esteemed because it comes from the living and true God, it's value to us comes only when we handle it. And the Apostle Paul is saying that in this particular text. He lays the foundation for the authority and the trustworthiness because this is God-breathed. It flows out of the character of God. Every word is inspired, the people who have written it. It is by God's providence. It has been collected and has now been printed and being distributed, whether it's being passed on literature or whether it's being passed verbally. This is God's word, trustworthy. But Paul says that there is a necessity for us to use it Because in this verse, he says, all scriptures God breathed, or breathed out by God, and profitable or useful for teaching, and for reproof, and for correction. What Paul is saying here to Timothy is that there is a need for us to actually use the word. It's profitable, and in use of the word, that's when we gain the benefits from it. The usefulness for the teaching and for the reproof, which simply means pointing out of errors and the correction. Now, we look at that, and sometimes we get so narrow-focused, at least I get so narrow-focused, and what does it mean by this word? But as I back off just a little bit, one of the things I realize is Paul is saying that the profitability, ultimate profitability, comes in the usefulness, and something through teaching, pointing out of mistakes, and then making of the corrections and encouragements. It really goes back to the whole Vince Lombardi issue. It's the fundamentals of recognizing we use this book and it's just nothing more than coaching. Coaching toward what? Well, we see that in the text right before that, we see that Paul's talking about the whole issue of salvation. That Timothy had been, because of his understanding of the scripture, had become wise to salvation. And so we're reminded that this book instructs us about the issue of salvation. And in that sense, it's different than any other book. See, too many of us look at the Bible and we recognize it's God's Word, and then we pick it up like it's a how-to book, a self-help book, something that gives us a list of do's and don'ts. And of course there are do's and don'ts that are in here, but if we look at the Bible as a book of do's and don'ts, we miss what God has inspired and what God has recorded and what God has written. Because while this book includes do's and don'ts and fills every need that anyone has that is looking through self-help, This book is basically the story of salvation. It is the story of God working out redemption from beginning to end. The Bible understood in a very short lesson uh, in the scripture has four major epics. Three of them are recorded in very short order in all the scripture. It's a book about creation that God created by speaking all things into existence and reminds us that he is the one who is the genesis for everything. We see that in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. We're reminded that we are a people who, though having been created after the image of God and blessed with every blessing because of that, because God loved us and endowed us, we rebelled against God and we have fallen. We see the evidence of that in Genesis 3 through, particularly through 11, just the the clear indication that we are fallen and we keep falling and can't get up. But we also see that theme of fallenness working its way all the way through because all the stories that follow those that aren't necessarily directly related to the fall, they serve as a backdrop that show the foolishness of the responses and the ugliness of the way people behave. Beginning in chapter 12, really beginning in chapter 3, but very clearly inaugurated in chapter 12 is the third major epic. So you have the creation, you have the fall, but now you have the redemption promise made in Genesis chapter 3, the initiation by the calling of Abraham and the promise that is made to Abraham that through him he would bless the entire, na- entire world, calling people from every nation, everybody would be blessed through him, which is really pointing to Christ who would be born into his line. And So from that point as he's gathering people through Abram and creating the nation of Israel, through whom Christ would be born to bless the entire world. We see the work of God's redemption. At the same time, people who are broken, just like you and me, people who were fallen because our first parents fell, they are acting against that God. Fallenness is always coming against redemption. And that is all of the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the redemption that was promised was fulfilled in the person of Christ, but yet we're still broken and fallen, but God has done the work that he's going to do. And now we have the promise at the end of the book of Revelation. You have the promise of the restoration, when all things will be made new, when Eden, when heaven will come to earth, it will be restored. The whole Bible is understood in terms of those epics. And Now as we look at these things, we understand it's one story. It's about God who created people, who rebelled, who can't help themselves. But God loves Made a promise, fulfilled his promise, and then is showing us what we can trust that is yet to come. See, it's in this story that we need to understand because only when we understand that do we gain the wisdom that is necessary to benefit from our study. Because it's in seeing that whole plan and story of redemption that we understand something that we cannot get simply by looking at this as a self help book. See, if it was only intended to be a self help book, there would be no need of a plan of restoration. It would be just simply this. Stop doing this and start doing this. When you mess up, stop messing up and start doing what's right again. Instead, we're reminded through the wisdom of God, speaking through Paul and others, hey, when we mess up, when we break something, the only thing that proves is we break things and we're broken and we can't help ourselves. This book, all scripture, Points to the glory of God and what He is doing and redeeming and restoring us in relationship to Him and to its perfect splendor. That's a picture of our salvation. And He's reminded us in this book, the centerpiece of it, which is our salvation, is that it only comes because we can trust in the promise that He's provided. Everything pointing to Christ, everything flowing from Christ. Christ is the center of all of the Scripture. And it's only when we recognize that and believe everything that He has said about Himself and what he accomplished. that We actually experience the salvation. That's how we become wise to salvation. But we also need to realize salvation is not just the status that we have. It is, not less. But that's not all there is to it. Sometimes we get so confused. Some of you come out of church traditions, or maybe uh, if you're visiting you in a church tradition, where the whole emphasis gets placed upon that conversion, now that you're saved. My name's Steve Smallman. I Wrote a book. It was called Spiritual Birthline. It's been retitled. I don't remember what it's called. I gave my book to Taylor and haven't seen it since. So anyway, um, (laughs) um, but uh, whatever it's called now, Taylor knows what it's called now. But he uses the analogy in saying that whole idea that the whole issue of as it is really leading up to the to the birth, the 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 rebirth is 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 off. And he makes the analogy of a midwife. As if when the time has come for a baby to be born, all the preparations made for the baby to be born, the baby is born, everybody celebrates as they rightly should. And then they just leave the kid alone and everybody goes on their merry way. Leave the kid to fend for themselves. That would be criminally neglectful, wouldn't it? I mean, We understand a birth is a reason for celebration. But a birth is only the beginning. And when we are made new by faith in Christ, that we gain understanding, how does that happen? It's because of God's initiative, God's reworking, and God giving us Jesus Christ, and we become new, and we are reborn when we believe that. That is just the beginning. It's worthy of celebration, but it's just the beginning. Our salvation doesn't end at that point. Well, neither are we in a holding pattern. Okay, we're saved, now we've got another 20, 30, 40, 60 years to live, and then we'll celebrate again when the whole thing is over with. The reality is our salvation is lived out and is worked out. We live in our salvation, and that whole issue, theologically speaking, is called sanctification. Sanctification is the process where we recognize our brokenness, we die to that, we grow more and more to be like Christ. It's the spiritual maturity process. Just as there is a physical maturity process from a baby that is born, for those of us who have been born into Christ, there is also a growing process. But how is it that we grow? How is it that we mature? How is it that we experience what salvation brings? And it's through the teaching and the instruction and the correcting and the encouragement that we find in the Scripture of God, that we speak to one another, that we read and are reminded as God is speaking to us. It's all part of the process, and we are benefited we are told, by Paul's words here, we profit. It's good for us. We gain something. We grow. We gain wisdom. And Paul says specifically here, training for righteousness. In other words, we all desire to be better than what we are. We all know that we are in need and, and cannot fix ourselves, at least not ultimately. But the Scriptures point to us in that sanctification and remind us Just as we began in Christ, that's how we live in Christ. We repent of our brokenness. We believe in the promise. And as we're renewed, being amazed at how much God has loved us, which is clear throughout the Scriptures, we are now empowered to live in a way that brings honor and pleases God and benefits us as well because we're instructed. Our errors are pointed out. That's the reproof. They're corrected, and we now move on. And we are equipped for the good works because salvation is not just of ourselves and we're told of that it's not just a spiritual issue people who claim I'm spiritual but not religious you know I'm not suggesting you be religious but I'm not sure what spiritual not religious means Does that mean you just feel funny feel good and maybe that's true for certain types of religious experience or spiritual experience but what God the living and true God has done through Christ and the giving of his Holy Spirit You see, is at work within us that during this sanctification, during this living out of our salvation, we don't just isolate ourselves so that we don't get corrupted by the world, but he who is in us is greater, we're told, than the world itself. And he sends us to the world, even to the most corrupt, most neglected, most hated part of the world. And so the word of God prepares us with wisdom and an anchor for our faith and for our soul. And equips us and builds us up and strengthens so that we can be sent out and bless others and be using God's vessel, become God's vessels. It is profitable for us because we all have a desire not only to be better, but to be useful. And God says his word, which is trustworthy, because it is God's word, will do in us what we desire, what God desires. So it's highly reliable for us, to guide us. Saw, not long ago, the movie clip, a movie coming out in a couple of weeks that's based on Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods. Some of you read the book, and the movie looks like it's gonna be starring Robert Redford and Nick Nolte. Uh, If you haven't read the book, I won't be ruining the plot for you because I'm not sure there really is one. I think it's it's a a series of experiences um, to be shared um, now in film. Uh, but two guys who have absolutely no business walking the Appalachian Trail deciding that they're going to walk the Appalachian Trail. And so the book itself, uh, it just talks about their experiences on the trail and is a constant reminder, a recurring reminder of why they shouldn't be out there in the first place. I'm looking forward to seeing the movie. But it made me start thinking, what if you were about to embark on that voyage uh, yourself? You were going to try to walk the Appalachian Trail. Now, I don't think there's anybody here, at least I've not heard of anybody here who's actually done that. Some of us have done section hikes, but to actually walk from, you know, Georgia up to Mount Katah- Katahdin, uh, I don't know if anybody here has done it. But if you've decided that you are going to do that, what kind of trail guide would you want? Would you want somebody who's never done it? Would you want somebody who had tried and failed? Would you want somebody who had done it, but whose character was suspicious? You know, some redneck from North Georgia that just has this bizarre sense of humor and drinks too much beer? I mean, you know that he can do it, but you're not sure that he's going to tell you what you need to know. Or would you want somebody who has done it, whose character is impeccable, demonstrates knowledge, experience, and trustworthiness? The Apostle Paul says, because God's word, because this is God's word, It is trustworthy, and it is beneficial, profitable. It is able, it's reliable to direct you to navigate this life. But we need to realize that the key difference here lies not in our gaining information, but in the way that it brings formation. See, many people will read this book and they can pass trivia questions and theological questions and answer theological questions, but their lives don't show any change. They have not profited because while they have learned stuff, they have not been formed. They have not really had enough reproof or correction. They're just puffed up in their knowledge. But what Paul is telling us here is that while there is a lot of information in the Bible that helps us to grow in wisdom, the purpose of the Bible is to form us as righteous and useful. May God be at work within us to understand not only the value of the word that we claim to stand, but to trust it, and to learn from it, to be shaped by it, and to be a people who are the world. Last story related to this. read not long ago about a uh, South African minister who was traveling. He got to Heathrow Airport, and when his luggage was going through, it sounded off the alarm, you know, the one that the police usually kind of come for. And so they pulled him off to the side and went through his luggage and they found the uh, uh, offending weapon. The, the, uh, the, the metal was his Bible that had a metal zipper on its cover. And the man said that, you know, the, the minister who was traveling, you know, because he had several police around this potential international terrorism at Heathrow, his first response, he says, was a protest. And he says, that's just, that's just a Bible. To which one of the guards said, that is a powerful and dangerous book. Because those who gain the wisdom and who are formed by it will be the vessels of God to bring transformation to the lives of the people around you and ultimately to bring in all of the kingdom of God. May we be those vessels. Father, we do pray with thanksgiving That you have granted us this word. Strengthen us in its truth. Give us a hunger for it and a delight in it. Lord, I confess it's not all easy. And sometimes it's difficult, not only to understand, but to work through it. I confess that there are times where I'm hungry and there are times that it's duty. I pray, Lord, that you would open my eyes and my heart to hear your voice speaking, breathing, that the life that is in this book would renew the life that is within me and all of us here who love you, who are called according to your purpose, and who long more and more to be like you. We pray that you have given us your word through your spirit, Lord. May this word shape us and empower us to your glory and our joy. I pray in Jesus. Amen.